The Portland Insight Meditation Center is located in southeast Portland, Oregon. Robert Beatty has been the guiding teacher there since 1978. For more information and to access many more teachings available online, please visit portlandinsight.org. Come home to the body that sits here, this body that we think of each of us as my body. Notice how alive it is. We could direct awareness toward the feet and legs, tingling, vibrating, alive, warm, cool. We could direct it toward the hands, what we think of as my hands. to the face, to the throat. Notice the front side of your neck, the throat, and the back. And the left side of the neck and the right side. See if there's any tension in there that you can volitionally release. Feel how long it is from the root of the tongue down into the chest. Soften into the life of the throat and neck. And allowing awareness to open now in the chest and abdomen with the breathing in and breathing out.
It takes a little effort to do this, a certain kind of effort. There is mindfulness. Knowing, knowing that the mind has wandered perhaps and then what they call initial application or targeting. Finding the sensations of breathing and then sustained application, spending there's a certain intention that has to do with staying here, attempting to stay here. Becoming intimate with the sensations of breathing if not here in the chest and abdomen, perhaps at the nostrils. And we're not attending to some imagination. There are metaphors used like breathing in through the feet or breathing in through the hands. This is about bare attention to the actually existing sensations. There are a couple of attitudinal phrases you've heard from me quite frequently that I find really helpful. I aspire to love and accept myself exactly as I am in this moment. And when I'm hurting, no matter how I'm hurting, I aspire to hold myself in sweet compassion. Have mercy on yourself. Living is really hard. So our meditation becomes one of great love, <clears throat> awareness and love wrapped all together. They're actually synonyms for each other.
When the mind wanders, be gentle. Awareness happens spontaneously. Come back. Come back to breathing in and breathing out. We never know what we will find, what will reveal itself from one moment to the next, let alone one day to the next. Have mercy on yourself. Give yourself the gift of awareness in this moment, this passing moment. How alive can you be in this moment? Keeping it very simple the body so full of life. The breath coming and going.
Each breath has a beginning. It has a rising to fullness and then a decline and disappearance. Like every single phenomenon, Resting back into this moment of breathing in and breathing out.
Have mercy on yourself. Taking this time to turn inward. To observe the ways that the mind wanders, how it creates the past and future. How somewhere between body and mind, there are moods and emotions. Set yourself free from identification. Just big words for saying, be awake. Notice what's happening. There is something very mysterious happening, isn't there? How does this awareness occur? What is it? I'm not suggesting you go off into a thinking storm around what is consciousness, because it's right here. It's this that illuminates and knows experiences like this breath.
like the sound of this voice, like wandering minds when they arise. One never knows what will arise. My neighbor to the south rebuilds cars. And a few minutes ago, he started using some kind of a grinder. I don't know if the sound goes out over Zoom, but it certainly does over Facebook and YouTube with a different kind of microphone. sound, depending upon how the mind greets it, oh, stopped. It could be very, quote, irritating. One could create irritation about it. Or it could be sound. Or it could be sound and irritation and awareness of that. Have mercy on yourself. Set yourself free.
No matter how much uproar there is in the world, no matter how much uproar there is in our own hearts and minds, one way or another, we can cultivate mindfulness of what's happening. we can reopen to that reality in which every experience through the sense doors is objective rather than subjective. So thoughts become thoughts, moods become moods, memories are memories. And the present moment is like this. And let us end with turning up the metta or the loving kindness. On the in-breath, thinking a kind thought for yourself. Among the classics on the in-breath, may I be really happy. 
May I be free from fear and danger, both inner and outer. May I live with ease and grace. May I be liberated. May my life become one great sigh of gratitude. May I recognize that every moment can be a moment of awakening or any phrase that would nurture you. Perhaps that great single line mantra, I love you with your name at the end. For some of us, that last mantra is either difficult or impossible. In which case, I love myself including or especially the parts of myself that were so wounded in childhood that loving myself is difficult. That's on the in-breath where we breathe in the love of the universe, the love of the Buddha or Kuan Yin. And then on the out-breath, perhaps the same thing, may all beings be happy. May all beings be free from fear and danger, inner and outer. May all beings live with ease and grace. May all beings remember their true great nature. May all beings come to recognize each breath as a great song or sigh of gratitude. And so we're still aware of breathing, perhaps of the whole body and its aliveness. And in love, there's room for everything. When love encounters suffering, it turns to compassion. When we live with compassion, our hearts turn to mercy kindness, helping. Let's begin with ourselves. And please now recognize the coming to an end of this time together in this meditative way. And let your head, neck, Stretch a little bit, very mindfully. Notice where the sensations are. When you get to somewhere where there's a bit of a pull, a bit of a discomfort, hang out there, feel the discomfort. Recognize that you don't have to avoid it. You can, in fact, really embrace it and turn directly into it. And then maybe let your arms stretch a bit, still with your eyes closed, very much in the body.
And then letting it all come to rest and letting your awareness come to the face and the eyes. And then noticing the intention to allow the eyes to open. And then let that operationalize and you'll notice seeing or there will be awareness of seeing. In a few moments, I'm going to ask Jim to lead in some mindful movement. Before then, I have just a couple of announcements. Uh, one is what, what I'm going to do after the movement is play you that Mary Gauthier song that um, my friend wrote me about that I sang to him on recording. And um, then use that to lead into some reflections on compassion, compassion and mercy for ourselves and perhaps for others. Um, but announcements, um, keep August the 1st available. I'll be leading a retreat that day with Candle Summers. And uh, that will be actually the start of Campbell, uh, Campbell, Candle will be offering, we've, she's still deciding, but probably Sunday nights, uh, twice a month, uh, an open meditation group. So we'll have Sunday night, Monday night book group, Tuesday, we're, we're, we're hopping. And then the other announcement pertains more, well, no, I guess it does pertain to this group as well. Uh, I finally, after much, um, must have been 30 people, particularly Jennifer, saying, uh, take a break, take some time off. Uh, a few days ago, I got a, just got on it and I rented a truck and I'm leaving on Thursday morning for the mountains and I will be gone until Tuesday the following week. And, uh, so next Sunday, Gregory Malouf will be teaching. And then Thursday, Jim will be on. Friday, I think, is Gary in the morning. And then Monday, Doyle. And Tuesday, uh, Doug. And part of the idea of that is for the morning crowd to get a sense of who these other teachers are. And uh, then perhaps visit their classes as well. So I'm very much looking forward to my time off. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not taking the dogs. I'm not taking Budo because he's deaf and he could get eaten really easily. 
And uh, so I'm going to have five nights of solitude and no electronics and just time sitting by a creek somewhere. So looks very interesting. So Jim, would you be so kind as to turn on your microphone and... Okay, if you want to join me, I'll stand up and try to find myself in these uh, little boxes here. <clears throat> I have to stay in the box at all costs. <laughs> All right. So if I tilt things, you can see more of my legs and see what I'm doing a little more, and then I'll be ready to go. <laughs> okay. So <clears throat> about 15 years ago, I learned this shibashi routine and I just love it. I just keep coming back to it over and over and over again. Just, uh, um, it, it, it seems boring some days, but it's always good. The idea is to get in touch with our feet, get in touch with our knees, do a little scan of our connection with the earth, shaking back and forth a bit, moving slowly moving quickly dropping on our heels up on our toes and drop on the heels what's our connection to the earth and then separating the arms from the torso a little bit feel the freedom of the ribs to open up like there's a balloon inside that's pressing to the sides, to the front, to the back, up and down, just nice, easy breaths, but full breath. And you may find that there's areas that are uncomfortable or tight or not awake, stiff. So we sink into our knees and let our hands rise and fall. And there's a rhythm to our movement. There's a beginning and an ending. A beginning of a descent and an ending. Feel how that starts from a stillness, it ends at a stillness, and then again, a stillness. A rhythm of breathing in, breathing out, loosening the shoulders, softening the elbows, softening the wrists. Then lifting again and opening. And again, the ribs feel a new freedom. And then we come back to our stillness at the end of the cycle here and start again. Beginning, ending, beginning, 
and ending. There's a journey opening, closing. Closing comes to an end with stillness, lifting. Coming together and sinking, we'll stop and now notice our connection with the earth. Notice sensations in the lower legs, in the knees, in the hips, shoulders, upper arms, lower arms, hands. Then again, sink, this time lifting the arms all the way over the head, painting a rainbow off to one side, covering the whole dome now, all the way across the sky with the rainbow. What are the predominant sensations as you're painting? Where does the attention go? Shoulders, arms, hands. What about the feet? Once more across, sink, relax both arms and pause. There's still a rhythm of breathing that has a beginning and an ending of the inhale, beginning and ending of the exhale. And there's this journey between beginning to breathe in and a journey, beginning to breathe out, and journey to the end. Now we're going to do more complexity, turning, extending both hands out, palms up, bring the front hand in, push from the back, Turn the wrists, bring the front hand in, push from the back. So there's a beginning and an ending to each pulse. It's almost like swimming, but it's a gesture that has a pull and a push together. What are the predominant sensations in the spine, in the shoulders? the palms of the hands, in the feet. Where does the attention settle? Is there a constriction, a stiffness that just won't let loose, or is there a flow and a relaxation that's new? What's the predominant sensation? It doesn't have to be positive or negative. Could be just quiet. So let's investigate. Lower the hands. 
what are the predominant sensations with this standing body? Rhythm of the breath as a beginning, a journey, and an end. Then the out-breath, beginning, journey, and end. Now the next out-breath will sink, cross the wrists, come up. Separate the wrists and push out. We call this gesture separating clouds, but it has a beginning lift, a turning over, and a pressing out, and a release. There's lots of different pieces, but it's separating clouds. A phrase captures all these sensations. Shoulders, elbows, wrists, fingers. Feet, knees, the beginning of the breath is the beginning of the gesture, pause for a second and then release. Beginning, journey, ending at the top, and beginning the descent. Releasing, and coming to stillness. Investigating, the feet are like this. The knees are like this. The hips. Diaphragm. Upper chest. Shoulders. Arms, hands, and again, we sink, reach out to the side, feeling the journey, descending down, opening to the side, descending down, once more, gratitude for this living being, this body that has sensations from tip to toe and healthy lungs and opportunity to practice again, bring our hands together with gratefulness and bow to all the people who joined with us and may do so in the future on uh, YouTube or someplace like that. But we're connected in many, many, many ways.
connected in gratitude. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. It's going to take a moment or two for me to get back to my seat. <laughs> okay, let's uh, have a seat, everyone, and uh, <clears throat> find out. Just tune into your legs if you've been standing and let your legs say thank you. <laughs> the legs are no longer supporting us. But then feel the alertness in your spine. All the uprightness of your body is organized around the spine now, breathing. All right. Journey in oh, and release it. Thank you, sir. You're I, welcome, uh, sir. I once again. Use the other camera and focused it on the screen of my computer so the YouTube and Facebook people had the visuals as well. <laughs> kind of wild. All right. Hmm. So I got to get rid of this pillow. There. Thank you, Jim. There's always for me, and particularly on Sunday mornings, all these years of years, it's been a long time. I taught on Sunday evenings once a week, with the exception of there were a couple of years when the babies were really little, but for 33 years, I taught on Sunday nights, Sunday evenings. And then a few years ago, 8, 10, 12, maybe we shifted to Sunday morning. And there's been all these times of wondering, well, what should I say? 
fortunately the buddha's teachings are incredibly rich and the fundamentals are of such importance we can go back to them time and again and it's always useful i'm sure it's the same for some of you as it was for me with some of my teachers it's, it's like well i've heard that talk so many times and there really are only a few basic concepts, I think. But how to say something which is relevant to the time? I keep getting, um, not startled, but um, I keep having moments of waking up to what a weird time this is and how difficult it is. I talked to my daughter Tara a couple of days ago now. Last night, actually, I talked to her a couple of days ago and last night she sent a text with the number 12. She has 12 more shifts to work in the hospital she's in in New York City and then she's gonna come home. She did, some of you may not know this, she did get the virus and was down for two weeks took care of herself and came through it really quite well, young, healthy, etc. But it's been very hard. The hospital is pretty dysfunctional and um, lots and lots of work. Oh, I'm glad I, <laughs> I'm glad I moved the pillows in. It's starting to rain rather hard. So, I keep waking up to the fact that something really big is happening. It's happening on a planetary basis for human beings. And it's happening really badly here in the United States. So I was thinking this morning and I thought I would, I read that, that email and then I that I read to you at the beginning and then I remembered this song so I want to play it and I invite you just to let it waft over you um, for most of you I'm sure you're listening on your computer so the sound is not very rich but the the words are really of great significance and very uh, what's the word um, evocative of what I'd like to talk about I think So uh, a, a Tempest, you wrote a thing in the, in the chat. I'd like that when I was talking about my, my journey to the woods. Yes, wouldn't everybody or most people? And what an incredible privilege it is for me to be able to imagine having the capacity to rent a vehicle. That's huge. And the health to be able to do such a thing. All right, I'm going to do this. And this, and I hope I can make this work. Ah, here's the page. Mary Gautier. That didn't do much. <laughs> His work is almost over 
won't be long, he won't be right. Getting close here. Jim, will you give me a thumbs up or down if it's working? Is that good? My father sure could use a little mercy now. The fruits of his labor falling right slowly on the ground. Very good. His work is almost over. It won't be long, he won't be around. I love my father. He could use some mercy now. And my brother sure could use a little mercy now. He's a stranger to freedom, shackled to fear and doubt.
I find myself <clears throat> moved by that song again. I've played it both on the recording and my own playing and singing many, many, many times. And it speaks to me of the first noble truth, the first ennobling truth of the Buddha. You may not know the story, but Siddhartha Gautama set off, left his home and family and his destiny as a ruler to find the end of suffering. And went to great lengths, almost killed himself starving, 
And at the uh, the end of his fasting, trying to get free of attachment through fasting, he did almost die. And he uh, he was he was nursed back to health by a young woman named Sujata, who gave him it's a colorful image. Uh, the milk rice, uh, uh, rice pudding, basically, which was made from the concentrated milk from a hundred cows that was fed to three cows, that was then fed to one cow that was distilled down into one cup of milk. In essence, the, the, the true heart of human kindness, the heart of compassion. And uh, enter the feminine into this otherwise very masculine story so far. And um, then he woke up. He took some weeks, seven weeks, the story goes, there before he then thought, who, oh, and I forgot a piece that there were five, he was with five friends exploring how to get free. And when he started eating again, they abandoned him. They left him, you know, you've fallen back into the world and we're not going to hang out with you anymore. And then he, uh, he, when he woke up, he realized these are the people who could most likely understand. So he, as the, as the teachings say, he looked around the world with his celestial eye <laughs> and he found them some, about a, about a 10 day walk away from where he was. And he went to them, and as he approached them, they turned away and they said, let's not talk to him. You know, he's fallen back into the worldly life. But there was something about him that got their attention. And when he got to them, they made a place for him to sit. And then he said, I found it, my friends. I found the, I found the door. I found freedom. And the first thing he said, this is the first sutra, the, it's called the Dhamma Chakra Pavatana Sutra, the putting in, mole, in motion the wheel of the Dharma Sutra. Uh, and he started off by saying, there's really a lot of suffering in the world. There is dukkha. And I keep noticing there's a lot out there, there's a lot in here. So the first noble truth is that there's great suffering. Doesn't say everything's suffering, but the normal human mind creates a vast amount of suffering. Birth, sickness, old age, decay and death. Having experiences you don't want, not having experiences you do want, being with people you don't want, not being with the person or persons you do want. That kind of covers the waterfront, doesn't it? Have you, have you had any experiences so far today you didn't want to have? Did you have coffee? I did. Why? Because I wanted an altered state. So, dukkha, and then it's cause, craving, wanting things to be different than they are. I would like less pain, more pleasure, and I want to become something that isn't this. And then the third noble truth, which is the great promise, which is that there can be relief from this suffering by waking up to reality, by waking up to what's true. And we do that waking up through really being willing to open to the reality. Birth, sickness, old age, decay, death.
There's another list, very prominent list in the Buddha's teachings. Incidentally, in the Four Noble Truths, the fourth truth is the Eightfold Path. The, 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 so you've got the, the sickness, the cause, the cure, the cured state, and the treatment plan. And then there's another rather beautiful list, which is the, the affective or the states which occur, which remain when the greed, hatred, and ignorance at the root of suffering go away. And those are very familiar to many of you, I'm sure. Love, metta karuna mudita upeka. Love, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy or delight, and equanimity. So in love, and I, I heard this first from Ajahn Sumedho, and it really has changed my life, that the practice of loving means there's room for everything. It's different from romantic love or I love this ketchup or something like that, but uh, it's, um, it's a mind that is willing and able of being open to what actually exists. And when love encounters suffering, when the being is stable somehow, the love turns to compassion. The Buddha called it the sensitive heart's natural trembling when faced with suffering. When love encounters success, happiness, things turning out well, it turns to sympathetic joy or delight, taking delight in the happiness of oneself or others. And may it persist, may it, may it grow and persist. And then the fourth, which is not nearly so often spoken of, though is utterly essential, uh, is equanimity. And equanimity is the capacity to be with the pleasures and pains of the world without getting overwhelmed, without getting blown off center. And in equanimity, there's an understanding, not an intellectual understanding, but a very deep visceral understanding that this is the way of the world. This is the nature of the dukkha planet. Dukkha being the first noble truth. So again, I'm going to ask that question that I started with, I think. Have you noticed how much suffering there is in your life? Have you noticed perhaps that this period of isolation that we're in of less distraction, less quote pleasure, maybe increasing the dukkha or providing a different slant on it? Mm -hmm. 
I know I'm I'm uh, I'm finding the social, cultural, political truths to be very unsettling. Like in that letter from my friend, he's a very positive fellow, but there's something about the monumental nature of the social political suffering, which um, sometimes gets kind of overwhelming. And it's not that there's not really good things happening. Some of the things coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement look very positive. And um, well, there's so many things actually. I, I, the, I, I know my morning meditation has really resulted in many people really getting into their practice and developing a daily practice. Um, so for some, for some people, this is a period of great waking up and that's wonderful. But there is the question, how does one, how does one, how do we respond to a time like this? How do we respond to our suffering? And if we're, if we're practicing more, if we're spending more time actually being inward, we're going to notice the dukkha more. We're going to notice the suffering more. And it really behooves us to approach it with great compassion, to approach ourselves with great compassion. And what does that mean? I think it means when you're sitting, for instance, I aspire to love and accept myself exactly as I am in this moment, including the bliss states and the suffering, sad, confused, angry, hurt, lonely, despairing states. And somehow or another, experiencing it from the wisdom of the Buddha or Kuan Yin or from the heart of the Buddha or Kuan Yin, and this can sound just like jargon. So what's that? The heart of the Buddha, the heart of Kuan Yin. But isn't it the capacity of being with the suffering without freaking out? And that's where having a meditation practice where we have some concentration and some mindfulness and the seven enlightenment factors in greater and greater am amounts and development so that we can actually bear our own suffering and not identify with it, not take it so seriously, um, that we can actually find relief from it. How about that? That's important. I know a week or so ago, uh, I was kind of contracted for a few days, fatigue, I think. And it was very difficult, even in an hour or two of meditation, it was very difficult to find that place of equanimity or ease or uh, rest. And I think that I, I had gone beyond my design limits in, in being with more suffering than I could uh, assimilate. So the song just popped into my head again, Mercy Now. When we're suffering,
how do how how do you i guess i'd put it how do you have mercy on yourself what are the coping mechanisms you use to create more resiliency in yourself are there people with whom you can congregate very difficult in this time but are there people you with whom you can congregate and uh, comfort yourself is there some one person with whom you can speak really freely and truly and deeply about the suffering that you're experiencing? And I guess there's one more thread I want to pick up, which is I was talking with a friend the other day who is a, he's a little older than me, consummate psychotherapist of, he, he worked for 40 years or so in psychotherapy. And uh, we were talking about what is it that between the two of us, you say, what is it that we know that's been helpful to people? And uh, among the things we got came up with was uh, one that was particularly true with me is that I, I really know, I know a bunch about the basics of mindfulness and how to cultivate it. And uh, you know, the basic Buddhist teachings are pretty clear to me and how they work and and so I can point them out to people. And there's another thing, which is, it's really clear to me that our childhood wounds, the things that happened to us in the first two years, five years, and then the traumas that occurred to us through our lives, they didn't just vanish, they didn't go away. And that when we meditate, particularly if we meditate significantly, we start noticing them and we start noticing how they are, they are affecting our every moment in life. And the, you know, the, it's the, the small child metaphor, the, the inner child business. There isn't a child in us, but there are structures left over from that time that we really suffer from. And, um, I was thinking of that particularly around that, uh, when, when we say that the mantra, I love you, and put your name at the end. For many people, that's very difficult. And that's, a, that's an impediment in our happiness and in our capacity to be really conscious. And so among the things that I know and my friend knows is it's a really useful practice to start paying attention to our feelings, our emotions, and to the, the calling out from inside, from the part of ourselves that really wants to be held carefully, held in compassion. And we can do that in a lot of ways. We can start a journal where we start paying attention to that part of ourselves. Or simply to pause and 
ask yourself, what am I suffering about right now? For a lot of people, there's loneliness right now. For many of us, it's anger. We're angry at the powers that be and want a, want a revolution or change things. So I, I wanted to talk about this practice of compassion, which is really turning toward the places that you're hurting. And they aren't far. You know, they're right there in that mood of sadness or fear or irritation or loneliness or despair. And to turn toward it with mercy. My father could use a little mercy now. Every single thing could use a little mercy now. So to start with ourselves and maybe to continue with ourselves for quite some time. And one of the most merciful things we can do, one of the kindest things we can do for ourselves and other beings is to take time to sit. Well, that's about 75% on what I wanted to say here this morning. It's hard to get to it, but that's close. Stepping in an upwelling of sadness that it's there's so much suffering among human beings at all times, and right now, um, I try to steer away from the political because the Dharma is for everybody, but what a strange, weird thing it is that somehow or another wearing masks has become politicized. All the other developed countries of the world are managing to reduce their COVID numbers by practicing skillful social distancing. And we are failing because of politics, because of ideas, because of my First Amendment rights to not wear a mask. It's so crazy. It's, an, it's, a, it's such a destructive polarity. And that's sad, isn't it? Sad, and we can get angry about it, but it's just human nature showing itself in this very strange way. A very American way. A, there were apparently, um, Jennifer was telling me, there were demonstrations back around this, the, um, the Spanish flu way back when um, about the same thing. I can't be forced to wear a mask because I have my First Amendment rights. Sad. So, Reining that in, I wonder if you have something to say. 
anything you're discovering about dukkha or the end of dukkha? So please, Joan. Oh, Joan, just can you just um, unmute? Yay, there you are. Wonderful. Uh, Thank you. It's interesting to say, you know, just sit more. I've been sitting so much that the other day my husband said, aren't you getting tired of this? And listening <laughs> to these things over and over again. And I, and I realized I was sitting to avoid thinking and ah. to avoid getting depressed about what was happening. And I'm very curious to you about the coping mechanisms because I don't think I was really sitting. I don't think I was really concentrating. I think I was just thinking if I leave the, the person on and they talk to me somehow, it'll keep me from uh, thinking. Uh, so you were doing guided meditations? Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, well, we can use meditation to keep ourselves unconscious too. Yeah. You know, one it's of the antidotes... One of the antidotes for that is to do walking meditation. Hmm. Lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. Don't be listening to, um, don't listen to someone, but just do walking or go for a walk in the neighborhood and be aware of left, right, left, right, left, right. It's a way to break up the habit of using meditation to suppress. Good idea. Thank you. You're welcome. KB, I saw you there for a moment, I think. Yes, uh, Robert, I put a question in the chat if you wanted to address it. Can you ask me or shall I look? Oh, sure. No, I just, um, I'm confused with the difference between equanimity and deadening myself because I can't feel it. If I feel everything, then I can't function. And I'm, I'm just very confused about that because it feels unhealthy when I might be actually in a place of, of equanimity and I can't tell the difference. You mean, oh, there's, let me see if I remember this. There's a direct enemy of equanimity, which is not giving a damn. I just don't care. There you have it, and I'm 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 trying to figure out that scale because I I have no right. measure measure on that yet. Well, there's a equanimity becomes more and more essential as we practice more and are more capable of actually perceiving the suffering of the world because we can easily go down the tube overwhelmed with too much. Um, and so, and it's a very common thing I've, I, I encounter with, with students that they're getting more and more sensitive. And, and it's not just, it's not that's just the usual suffering of watching the news and getting flipped out about the news. It's the uh, getting in touch with the existential suffering of simply being a human being aside from politics and it's just realizing how difficult it is. And so equanimity is a very awake, alive, attentive state. It's not a dull state. It's not an I, I don't care state. It's an I care profoundly. And I also have enough wisdom to know that this is the way of the world. All but isn't being, that Wait, let me finish. Oh, oh, go ahead. 
No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. There's a no, little. I, now I'm waiting for you. Tell me what oh. you're thinking. Um, I guess. Um, how how does one carry that kind of um, emotional weight and not uh, succumb and not fall down? Because if you if I open up to that, I become overwhelmed so so quickly. I guess is mm -hmm. the question. So. I think what's happening there, KB, is not so much equanimity as overwhelm. And um, sometimes, sometimes turning down the spigot is essential so that we can actually not become overwhelmed and reactive. And I know with your strong activist impulse, that's really hard to do. Oh, you know what? I, I, something would be helpful here. Let me see if I can, can I find it? Yeah. I'm sure I've read this before that you've heard, but about 20 years ago, let me just think for a second. It's Merton, Thomas Merton. 20 years ago or so, I was teaching a retreat and on the board was a short reading and I read it. And I looked at it and it affected me deeply. And I uh, turned away because I knew that if I really took this in, I would have to change my life. And about five years ago, or maybe less, uh, I remembered it. And then I, uh, I, I found it in 30 seconds online. It was like, boom. And this is it. It's from Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton, who was a, a monk, a Catholic monk who became very enamored of Buddhism and was really researching the similarities between the two at the time of his death. <laughs> I should say. Um, caution. You know, you know the way they say, direct depictions of violence in this next scene. This is a level of wisdom that could could make things difficult for you and <laughs> does for me there is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs activism and overwork the rush and pressure of modern life are a form perhaps the most common form of its innate violence to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. There's, wow. a pervasive, there's a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs, activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form perhaps the most common form of its innate violence, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, 
To want to help everyone in everything is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. I'll post that on the PINC listserv. No matter how hard I work or we work, no matter how politically effective we are, no matter how sensitive we are, no matter how much we look at our own ignorance or white supremacy or the extraordinary dukkha in the world is going to continue. As my friend Eric Kolvig used to say, samsara, which is this whole life, samsara is broken and there is no fixing it. Now that can be, we could rail against that or we could say that's pessimistic or, or we could maybe rest into that and realize, oh, Oh, I can, I can, I can do some good in the world. I can do a little bit of good in the world. And human beings are still going to be human beings and we're very unconscious and we're all, we're all the walking wounded and we have trouble hearing each other and we get caught, so caught in, uh, I watched Jennifer and I had a minor conflict yesterday. Yeah, yesterday. And I watched as this, as there was this mood that was primitive from childhood um, that took hours to dissipate. And that's with all the skills and meditation and so on. So the human condition is prone to dukkha. How do we set ourselves free? so we can actually be effective in the work that we do. I guess that's in response to you, KB. So anybody else have anything you'd like to share? <laughs> I just had, had a funny thought about uh, many of you probably have never heard of even Mayor Baba. He was a great <laughs> Jonas is jumping up. Um, a great Sufi, I think, saint of the 20th century. And he had, he had one saying he said all the time, don't worry, be happy. <laughs> don't, don't take all this Sturm und Drang so seriously. He didn't say that. He just said, don't worry, be happy. Everything's going to fall apart and it's okay. That's a different perspective, isn't it? 
Kirpal Singh said, says this is from, do your best and leave the rest. <laughs> Ramdas quote here, it's perfect and it stinks. <laughs> so calling for anyone who wants to share something. Robert. I hear a voice. It's Jonas. Hi, Jonas. Hi, Robert. I, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you got some clothes on. <laughs> well, I wanted to, you know, my First Amendment right. <laughs> so crazy. Um, but I'm reminded that, you know, in my actually in my profession and even in my vocation whenever and i was surrounded by what one could call real dukkha i mean you know you have children that are basically on the verge of death and you're taking care of them and uh, adults and bearing you know all those those things and i would always be you know if i wasn't filled with joy literally i could not have done my job if i was recognizing the dukkha that it was surrounding me or any of us in a room mm -hmm. were recognizing that suffering of that that being none of us could really do the job please remind and, us of your job well i was a pediatric surgical nurse primarily and then in my religious practice at the time, I would teach people how to bury people. Mm. So there was a lot of, you know, you're dealing not just with the child in a room, you're dealing with their mm -hmm. parents, their grandparents, uncles, what have you. And you had to, mm -hmm. the function was really to calm them. I have to remain calm and the child has to remain calm because the reality is if they're not their healing process is not going to be as effective so you have to think well into the future of what you whatever you do is going to affect them and everyone around them and the one thing i discovered through all of that was to take i out of the out of the equation and be totally present in the moment. Mm -hmm. And I mean, an example would be, I would be sitting there arguing with some doc, it was during the Bush you know, years, and, and so we'd be arguing something and something immediately would be happening. There was some emergency, you know, and immediately we would, we would both go into, my favorite docs, and we'd just go met immediately into caring for what was needed at that moment in time. Mm -hmm. But if I allowed I to become present, then I couldn't be there for that child. That's the compassion practice, isn't it? The sensitive yeah. heart's natural trembling when faced with suffering and boom, you're there. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, and it is taking on the one project at a time. It's not trying to take on, 
you know, every room, you know, 15 rooms, you can't take on the whole project. You have to take on the one project that's in front of you mm. and be there and realize you're not there for you. That was the other thing I discovered. Be there, realize you're not there for you. You're there for them, you know? That's very beautiful and clear. Thank you, Jonas. Love you lots. I love you too. Thank you. <clears throat> hmm. It's so sweet for me to sit here and have you looking back at me. Thank you. I'm not suffering feeling isolated very much because I have so much contact through this funny little screen here. Pamela just wrote, Robert, your Dharma talk today is so present and heartfelt and pertinent. Thank you. That's, that's helpful to hear because one wonders sometimes. It's like, is this, does this make sense to be talking about this? So that's good. It's John. John, hello. One of the things I've noticed about you know, talking about equanimity, and, and I was ruminating a little bit on it here, but um, there, not to get too micro vision, but there seems to be two components to it. One is exterior equanimity and interior equanimity. I'm out of balance inside, and I'm probably going to be balanced, out of balance outside. So I, yeah. go, I go back into myself and open the door on that closet, and that closet where I keep all the nasty things you know, that have happened in my life, and root around in there for a little bit and say, all right, now what, what, what's the origin of this? You know, where's this coming from? And so I'll look at that and... and I don't have to 
I don't even have to change it. I just have to acknowledge it. And at this, at this juncture, I can just say, oh, God, that's what it is. Mm. And like each of the bad things just need attention, just need to be acknowledged, need to be recognized. Mm. And in that way, a certain amount of emotion, associated emotion, kind of drops away. Mm. I can see it, see them a little bit more objectively. Mm. And, and when I, I can see that, I can look, I can look outside and, and see that my worldview has changed slightly. If I'm paying enough attention to, to, mm. to, for, for KB and for everybody, just for what it's worth. Thank you, John. Yeah. <sighs> I know when I am out of balance with myself internally, the outer world, I can hardly see the outer world, let alone be very connected or compassionate. Well, it's 12.01. Is anybody sitting with something that you'd actually really like to speak? So I will not be with you next Sunday. I will be with the squirrels and woodpeckers and myself, which I'm looking forward to five days of retreat. So I wish you really well, and I will be here during the week this week. So if you want to join uh, in the mornings, 7 a.m., you can find the link for that on the website. Oh, and I should remember. In the practice of being connected with everything, one of our ways is to soften and find our way home through simply awakening. Another is through the practice of being generous. And if these broadcasts are helpful to you, I encourage you to um, find a way to support PIMC, which you can do on the website. And the, the most helpful thing is to make a monthly contribution, no matter what size. And uh, I've heard from many, many people that beginning to do that, they then feel more connected with the community. Of course, the real connection is meeting and connecting like this. But um, that brick and mortar thing and the, the people working at PIMC to keep it all going, um, all live in the real world, the real world, the material world. <laughs> so thank you for that. Let's close with an ohm and uh, I'll set my timer for 40 seconds or so. And here we go. Ready? Hmm. Om, the dial tone of the universe. Okay. Oh. Oh.
Have a lovely day. May you find sources of much joy. Thank Thanks you, for Robert. Tuning in. Thank you. It Thank was a wonderful you, morning. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Welcome. You're welcome. Bye, dear everyone. Bye bye. Enjoy your retreat, Robert. Oh, I intend to. <laughs> <laughs> I intend to. Here we go. Bye. Woo. End meeting. The Portland Insight Meditation Center is a 501c3 nonprofit organization and is funded entirely through donation. If you'd like to give, please visit portlandinsight.org and click the Donate Now button at the top right. Through your generosity, we can continue to offer these teachings, and we are so grateful for your support.